This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome back to Sexy and Surreal, a David Lynch and David Cronenberg podcast. I'm Joe Lipset, and I'm joined as always by Mr. Terry Menard. Hi, Terry. Hey, Joe. Can I offer you some uh, new shoes? New shoes. <laughs> new shoes. <laughs> There's so much musicality. I always forget about this in Twin Peaks. There there really is. And, you know, as we were watching this latest episode, I, I started thinking, this, I think, is why people love Twin Peaks. Because this, as we'll get into, is probably my favorite episode of, of the series so far. Oh, really? Interesting. Okay, so, folks, we are talking about Season 2, Episode 7, Lonely Souls. And, of course, folks, uh, even if the title doesn't sound particularly familiar, this is the episode that David Lynch returns to direct, and we reveal who is the killer of one Laura Palmer. But um, as we were talking about off-air, Terry, there's a lot that has happened since we last visited the town of Twin Peaks. There sure is. I was As I was going through the episodes, because um, again, this is my first time watching this show, particularly mm-hmm. in the second season. So I was like, I, I took a few notes per episode. I didn't write extensively, but there is... A lot of things that happen between uh, season two, episode two, and this episode. We have right. Josie Packard returns. Mm-hmm. Ominous people seems to be f- seem to be following her. Yep. Audrey is finally rescued from One Eye Jacks after a heroin overdose. Yes. What the it's hell? wild. It's very like America is afraid for its teenagers being forced into sex work as well as drug addiction. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, man uh we're introduced to harold an agoraphobe who was a friend of laura's and has her secret diary mm-hmm. i'm convinced that this is where the joke from buffy the vampire slayer comes in where uh willow during a career fair is told that she could become a florist and then she goes florist means crazy i don't want to be that and i'm partially <laughs> convinced that this is a play on that joke which i had never understood but yeah this agoraphobe is He's just, it almost feels like he's in a completely different show. He really does. And he's hes this kind of, I, I don't know, he gives off this kind of creepy, almost, I hate to call him a pedophile, but like there's some mm-hmm. creepy overtures there, as well as the fact that he is so protective of the secret diary and doesn't want anyone to see it, even though it could potentially, you know, help people solve the murder. It just, mm-hmm. I don't know, his character is very weird to me. And it's like, it's, it is a... A completely different side of Twin Peaks that we have than we have seen up to this point. Yeah, it's it's very odd. It feels like this character is a bit of a replacement for the psychiatrist. Oh, like, yeah. He's creepy. He's obsessed with Laura. He's got secrets that he should be turning over, but he's keeping them for himself. And I mean, especially in hindsight, Twin Peaks seem to be a show that is obsessed with older men getting involved with younger girls every older man in this in this series seems to want to have sex with laura is is the kind mm-hmm. of implication i'm getting from a lot of a lot of these characters and we'll be talking about some of that in this episode as well oh boy but then we also nadine wakes up and mm-hmm. she thinks she's 18 years old weird oh boy terry this is my least favorite season two plot line. <laughs> It continues. Does it continue to the end? Like, I'm like, why is this happening? Is this is this going to tie into anything? I 
can't remember if it ties into something. I don't think it ties into one of the big mysteries. And God help me, I cannot remember if or when it gets resolved. But yes, this goes on for quite some time from what I remember. Oh, boy. (laughs) It's a lot. And especially with a character that was never my favorite, to then have this poor actress have to play at being 18 and staying with her boyfriend while her parents are still in Europe. And you're just like, oh, no please yeah i i'll be honest once that got introduced i was like boy i Mm -hmm. just don't know about this show (laughs) because there's like a lot of these non sequiturs that i'm just like i some of them i appreciate and some Mm -hmm. of them are like i want to know more about the characters but her and this new situation is not is not one of them Mm -mm. yeah it's her and then all the stuff with james and donna is just kind of like is here it's something it really is another thing that is something is leo is catatonic and is being taken care of by shelly and bobby in an ill-advised scheme to try to make money yeah Ooh. this was one of those things where when i first watched the show as i sat in one of these episodes i didn't watch it in 1990 or 91 when it aired but i did watch it probably about a decade later and this didn't strike me as particularly gratuitous and now i'm very very uncomfortable with what we're doing with leo where he is basically portrayed as an invalid and a source of mockery by the show and it oh i was just deeply uncomfortable yeah there's a there's a scene where they're you know throwing him a birthday party and his face he falls face first into the cake and Mm -hmm. their joke is well at least we didn't have candles lit and i'm just like this is it's like leo's not a good person but this is offensive yeah and and that is kind of part of the problem i think the show believes maybe in the moment that it's getting away with it because this is a man who abused his wife who we know was running drugs that were being sold to teenagers that like leo was a really awful guy but then for the show to do this and suggest that he is deserving of this treatment, it yeah. also makes Shelly and Bobby kind of look like maniacs. They, It does. It definitely does. Part of it was, was sort of one of those, like, it was kind of interesting in terms of, like, the idea that Bobby and Shelly are now parents and having to deal with the, mm-hmm. with the kid aspect of it that I was like, okay, yes. maybe that's sort of what you're, you're going for. They're playing it at real life, even though the show continually reminds Shelly and the audience that, you know, he is <laughs> in school mm-hmm. and he is missing school by taking care of this, this man. And he is yep. lying to his parents that he's staying at Mike's house and he can't keep doing that forever. Like, there's a there's a lot going on here and it's not handled very well and some of some of these characters some of these side stories just kind of feel to me as if they introduce these characters in season one and now they are immaterial to the plot so we've got to do something to keep them in mm. and i just i feel like we're just giving them really d e f tier like plots to deal with <laughs> unfortunately yeah, it, it's one of the things i've I'll, i keep meaning to go back and look at in greater detail because i i have a couple of academic texts that talk about this uh mostly about you know the cult phenomenon that springs up around the show but also how a lot of the visuals have you know you and i have commented on this in the past how they've contributed to other series how they've changed <laughs> the way that we make television and so on but Some of these, as you said, sort of non sequitur storylines 
are a little bit perplexing. I think one of the things that I always have to remind myself about Twin Peaks is that it's a show that's more interested in what we would now call a vibe as opposed yeah. to I'm telling a linear concentrated storyline. Like the the stuff with Cooper is sort of doing that, but a lot of these secondary characters that are orbiting the town are just there to be wackadoodles and have misadventures. And I do think, kind of continuing on with what you're saying, I do think this could be a vibey show, and I'm actually excited to get to the return where maybe yeah. it mm-hmm. is more vibey, because every time I'm vibing with what's happening in here, and I'm just like, okay, I'm just going to sit back and just enjoy the nonsense that I'm seeing on screen, then there's these little non sequiturs that sort of tear me away from that. And their characters, Nadine's character, Andy, who I still think is an adorable dummy, but is trying to pass mm-hmm. a sperm test. Oh, boy. Him and like, Lucy I'll- and their baby drama. <laughs> 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 and her with her with her foppish man who is working at the the, the fashion store that mm-hmm. she is like infatuated with. I, I don't know. All these little things just kind of ruin the vibe of what I'm sort of on the same level with. And then all of a sudden it's like, no, you're not. <laughs> I think particularly when you're looking at Twin Peaks as a bit of a murder mystery slash small town with secrets type show, all of these comedy bits feel like they are antithetical to the vibe. But if you look at it as a comedy show that has a weird mystery that permeates through it, I can't help but wonder if it would just play a little bit better. So I was struggling with this because I was like, is this a show where there are two parts that are being forced together and they are just not working for me? Mm -hmm. Or is this intentional? Like, I, I don't, I I don't know. I was really struggling with this. I was like, why am I not, why am I not enjoying this as much as I feel like I should? And I, I do think it's because these parts are too incongruous for me to fully sit back and just take this as a vibe show. Right. I can totally understand that. But then we also have Jacques brother, Jean, who wants to kill Cooper and the mm-hmm. town holds a pre-trial for Leland for the murder of Jacques yeah. in a bar. <laughs> Indeed. Yep. <laughs> Which I kind of loved. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> we get a little bit kooky, weird stuff like that in the back half of season two, particularly from what I remember of Wyndham Earl, who was also teased. We talked about him a little bit in our last episode. Yeah. Uh, so this is Agent Cooper's former partner, and he begins sending messages to Cooper. So in the episode, we're going to spend more time talking about Lonely Souls. He actually sends a chess move to Cooper to basically insinuate, hey, we're going to be playing a game in the near future. We have Philip Girard, who is being possessed by an invading spirit. Yes, this is the one-armed shoe salesman. Yes. David Lynch shows up as Cooper's very hard-of-hearing supervisor. Yeah. How did that comedy work for you? I find it successful the first time, and then it becomes increasingly grating when we keep doing it over the course of the episodes. Yeah, in, in the episode where he was introduced, I was like, okay, this is kind of funny. I'm, I am appreciating the fact that the creator of this show or the co-creator of the show who is literally the boss is Mm -hmm. now playing his boss and he's hard of hearing. And I, there's some, there's some, you know, comedy with that and I enjoyed it. But by the time we get to the second episode, I'm like, okay, this shtick is, has run its course for me. Yeah. I think that's another case of, if you were watching this week to week, it might play better because you were yeah. only watching an episode at a time. Whereas if you're watching even a couple of these back to back, the jokes run stale. Absolutely. And finally, to get us caught up to this episode, we have Piper Laurie 
an offensive mm-hmm. yellow face pretending to be Mr. Tojimura. Oh boy. Yeah. So of course, Catherine was missing after the events of the fire at the mill and she was presumed dead. And then, yeah, she shows up here doing this and it's real bad. I was trying to find information about this and I did find a little behind the scenes thing on uh, the fandom.com that has like a huge Twin Peaks uh, kind of wiki devoted just to them. Mm -hmm. I see in here that while playing Catherine as Mr. Tojimura, Lori was credited as Fumio Yamaguchi. No. The fact that Yamaguchi was Laura, Lori playing as a disguise, Catherine was kept secret from the rest of the cast and crew who were told that Yamaguchi was a famous Japanese actor who had only, who had worked with, who had only worked with Akira Kurosawa. And did not speak any English. Oh, boy. Derek Shimatsu, who I believe maybe was a cast member. I'm not, it doesn't really say, and I'm not 100% sure, would translate directions into Japanese for Lori, who would then respond to him in fake Japanese. No. (sighs) Many of the cast and crew noticed that the thick makeup Yamaguchi wore, and that's in quotations, and Peggy Lipton speculated that Yamaguchi's true identity was actually Isabella Rosalini. Uh, hmm. And Lori stated that Jack Dance was convinced that Fumio Yamaguchi was real until he read the scene where Tojimura's true identity is revealed. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a lot to unpack. Yeah. This is it one makes of those things. <laughs> I was going to say, it's not saving itself. This is definitely one of those incidents where you think, oh, it is so fucking 1990s. We would never do something like this no. to the point where we would make a Tom Cruise and Robert Downey Jr. movie about something like this, right? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, Yeah, it's just one of those things where when it pops up, and it's actually not a bad makeup job to the point where you think something's not quite right. It's almost uncanny valley. Your eyes recognize that something is wrong, but it's sort of passable. But then when you realize what's going on, it's almost unforgivable. It really is. And you had kind of offline, uh, you had messaged me and I was tipped off that this is happening. And it actually is introduced in the episode before the episode we were we were gonna we we're talking about today. And when we got to that, I was like, Oh, what is mm-hmm. happening here? Because we have plenty of Asian actors in here. And so I was like, sit, sitting here going, why? Why is this happening? Mm-hmm. And then and then to find out that it's because it's you know, Catherine pretending to be someone else. Like I get the idea of like our big reveal that this mm-hmm. act, per- person who has been presumed dead now pops up like six, seven episodes later. I get it, but boy, do we really have to put them in yellow face? Like this is really kind of gross. Oh, it's fully gross. Yeah. There's no getting around it. Unfortunately, this is something that we were prone to doing in Hollywood. Like, it seems too late to be doing something like this in 1990-91, but it was not. We still did it. No, it was. You're right. Absolutely. And it's... Oh, oh boy. Think of it this way, Terry. (laughs) Think of how far we have come that this pops up and you and I both just immediately reel back in absolute horror. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Progress has been made in... A very small degree <laughs> to mm. now. I, I mean, but it was, it, you know, it wasn't just Twin Peaks. Like, it, no. uh, Short Circuit was famously uh, cast it, you know, a white person as a um, Indian. Like, th- this mm-hmm. is something that happened so much in, oh, yeah. in cinema history. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, there's a long, deep, offensive racist history of it. Yeah. Okay, so why don't we talk about Lonely Souls? Because I have been dying to hear <laughs> how you responded to this reveal. Not about Piper Lore. <laughs> uh, about <laughs> the identity of Bob and who kills Laura. What did you think? So, unfortunately, I did kind of have it spoiled for me a bit okay. as I was digging into trying to figure out who characters were and keep things straight across, right. you know, mm. two seasons. Because wikis are going to lay everything out as yep. it happened, as opposed to keeping some secrets and then revealing them eventually. It is like, it is almost as if whenever I read a wiki, it is expecting us to have already seen the show, which I get. Right. So for me, I knew that Leland was ultimately the killer for it. Well, mm -hmm. Bob as sort Leland. Of. Yes. Right, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> because we learned that Bob is a parasite who can essentially infect a human being with his presence. Uh, and we learned that because, of course, we are introduced to another one in Mike who uh, manages to possess our shoe salesman. Which was something that I was not expecting because I actually thought Bob had been you know, uh, masquerading. I, I was under the impression that Bob was moving from person to person and that he oh, at okay. one point was in the one-armed man, Gerard. I see. Mm. So it was interesting to me. I was like, oh, wait, this is someone different because I was like, okay, we're going to get to the reveal that there is a demonic entity named Bob and we're going to find out that he was in Gerard. But no, it is like this entity that is possessing Gerard wants to stop Bob. And I thought, oh, this is really interesting. This is the mm -hmm. kind of stuff that I want to know more about. Right. Less so than the weird town stuff. It is this supernatural mystery that is plopped <laughs> within it that is like going, give me more, give me more of this weirdness. <laughs> yeah, I think you're probably like a large portion of the American viewing audience who tuned in wanting to know the details of the mystery of Laura Palmer's death. And then you had to contend with all the side stories that felt like they were taking up valuable real estate. I do wonder, though, how audience contemporary audiences at the time dealt with this supernatural angle, because while there have been weird things that have happened in the first season. Well, I mean, mm -hmm. the log lady, uh, particularly going into season two with Cooper seeing the giant, there is like an air of, of supernatural, but like, I'm curious what people thought if people, if people went with it, with the reveal that there is a supernatural entity that was acting through one of the people to kill Laura, as opposed to a traditional murder mystery that was grounded more in reality. I am curious because mm. I, I couldn't, I couldn't see anything when I did my very cursory search, but I, I do wonder because for me, it worked. I was like, I love yeah. this, but I am curious if people, if people felt, uh, ripped off by a supernatural entity at the time. Yeah, it's tricky too, right? Because the show seems to go out of its way to increasingly make Leland Palmer a bit of a pathetic figure. Like, he's mm. so clearly haunted, particularly in the second season when his hair goes all white, he's prone to crying fits, you know, he just seems almost disassociated from reality. And initially up until about this point maybe the episode before you think that he's just having a nervous breakdown based on grief and then you increasingly come to realize oh no he's just he's a man who's afflicted by this supernatural entity which controls him periodically makes him do these absolutely fucking horrible things 
and then he has to come back to himself. It's never quite clear to me whether Leland understands what he's done, and that's why he's so affected. I think it's something that we kind of explore after this because Leland is still a character. Like he gets caught. Right. And obviously he's already a suspect for another murder. So he's on the police's radar. Yeah. I will say that by the end of this episode, I, well, this episode, two things. One, this episode felt like um, another season finale. It does. Yeah. By the end of it, when we get like sort of a number of main characters at the bar and they're having this emotional moment mm-hmm. and it kind of sort of fades to black. I was like, this feels like the end of a, of a season. And of course we get another what 15, 14 episodes after this. Oh yeah. But yeah. So we have that, but also it did make me want to continue watching, which I think mm-hmm. is probably the intent behind this episode to sort of maybe revitalize audiences because it, if I was like, okay, now I want to watch what's happening in the back mm-hmm. half of the this, of this season. Yeah, like, how does it come out? How do people react to it? What happens next? And so on. And, of course, I'm sure, Terry, in your cursory investigations of the show, you learn this. But just in case anyone is coming to Twin Peaks a little bit cold and you've managed to continue listening to us talk through the last, like, four or five episodes of it, David Lynch famously never planned to reveal who had murdered Laura Palmer or like not so explicitly. And then Mm -hmm. basically he and ABC executives would butt heads all the time. They wanted him to reveal the killer at the end of season one. He refused. When they renewed the show, they were like, hey, okay, it's got to come out in the second season. I think they thought he was going to do it in the season two premiere. Nope. (laughs) And then so I think this is the negotiation they come to this agreement, okay, it's going to happen in this episode. And then at that point, we're going to move on to a new mystery, which is why we've been building to the arrival of Wyndham Earl, who is right. essentially where season two will go. But he never really wanted to do this. So it's interesting to me, particularly watching this episode as a David Lynch episode, where it does feel like the show is coming to a close and we're going to start a new chapter of it. And then, of course, there's the way that we shoot this murder, because I posted a clip of this. Um, yep. Basically, Leland slash Bob's attack on Maddie because Maddie gets killed in this episode. It is still one of the most harrowing things that I have ever seen. And the fact that it aired on network television, as someone was quick to tell me, well, it aired in the 1030 slot on a Saturday. And I was like, it's still network Mm. television. Mm. This is basically your father murdering an innocent young blonde teenager in a horrifying fashion. This is a father who is not only murdering this young girl who is related to him, but mm-hmm. also the proxy of his daughter. Right. The proxy of his daughter, but also licking her face, mm-hmm. uh, basically necking her just yep. like the, 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 the implications behind what is happening shows this idea of incest. It shows the yep. idea of sexual violence. Yep. You do wonder, I did see something where someone talks about. So Sue Lafke from the Journal of Film and Video explained this scene as as several in the series that suggest incest and necrophilia. Mm -hmm. She speculated that Leland slash Bob may have raped the dead or dying Maddie and comparing it to necrophilic fantasies that Laura Palmer's corpse evokes. Mm -hmm. And then Ben Horn's unwitting brush with incest when he encounters his his daughter Audrey at the brothel. So like there are implications in this that even without it needing to show 
implies something absolutely horrible. And I don't mm-hmm. care that this was at a specific late night time slot. This was no. 1990 on yeah. ABC. This isn't, this isn't in a time. This is not post like, gosh, uh, what is that? There, that cop show that was like NYPD really famous. Blue. Yes. NYPD blue. This is, this is not post that. This is not in the time where it's tried to compete with cable shows and HBO and whatnot. This is network TV at 1990. Mm-hmm. And this is, horrifying yeah and and then you it's not even just like oh it's a man attacking this girl and he kills her and there's insinuations of necrophilia and sexual assault and so on david lynch shoots this like a fucking fever dream it is slow motion i clocked it this is an eight minute sequence in a 44 minute episode from the moment that Agent Cooper sees the giant on stage at the Bang Bang Club to the credits, it's eight full minutes, most of which is in slow motion. Most of it is watching this physical and sexualized attack. It is it is just so overwhelming to me. And sure, like I've seen way more graphic depictions of violence. I've seen sexual assaults in finer detail than this, but it's that combination of the 1990 network television of it and the insinuations of who this is. Like this isn't some person who broke into the house and kills Maddie and oh no, it's a kill of the week or something. Like it's Leland Palmer. It's like America's dad committing this horrible violating act yeah yeah and also ray wise kills this like he does he and cheryl lee are just like so good and convincing like the scariness of this is how even just bob chasing and obviously bob is played by frank silva watching leland slash bob chase maddie around a conventional american living room it's the height of average domesticity that has been turned into this hunting ground and i think it's so confronting because it's like oh the violence is inside the house now it's not taking a young girl's body to a train car in the woods it's not over across in canada where the heroin is coming from this is like oh the violence is in your living room and i think one of the things that twin peaks does really well is because there is a lot of I hate to use the word silly, but for me, a lot of it is silliness. There is a lot of silly moments in it. And Mm -hmm. so I I do think that it's sort of the reason why when people throw like a horrific scene in a a kid's comedy or like in something that is not Mm -hmm. horror, it makes it hit harder. And so this, this show, while there are, we have like Harold has already hanged himself. We have, Mm -hmm. we have murders, we have death, we have horrible, disturbing things in this show. But there's a lot, it's undercut by a lot of humor, by a lot of non sequiturs that we've discussed, by a lot of silliness. And right. so I do think that by the time we get to the end of this episode, that has had uh, maybe a little bit more action than some of the previous episodes uh, between mm-hmm. like when we've discussed and up to this episode. But it does sort of disarm you so that the moment that Leland is looking in the mirror, and he turns around and he puts on these white latex glo- gloves, Ooh. and then he is chasing her around as you said this this bastion of domesticity in america and we have the spotlight on him when he's bob and the slow motion in particular that not only slows down the action but makes the screams turn almost demonic it's it's so much like and of course this is 
prime Lynch, right? Like I'm thinking yeah. back to what we've seen of him and how he distorts and plays with audio. And it's so, so important to the way he tells stories. And this, it feels like he's just leaning into how uncomfortable and not even surreal, because I do think that this is too grounded in the moment to let viewers off the hook. Like that's what makes it so hard to watch is that there is no escaping this violence. And let's not forget that this episode opens with this family, with Maddie, with another picture of domesticity, with the the record player that becomes an ominous thing in the scene in the mm-hmm. beginning is playing um, What a Wonderful World as Leland and his wife are drinking coffee, reading the paper, and Maddie is coming to sit between them, mm-hmm. just like the little cipher for the for Laura sitting between them, basically saying, guys, I'm ready to leave. I'm going to go home. But also there's that implication because she is a stand-in for Laura of like the kids leaving the nest, this empty nest idea of, mm-hmm. of you know, it's just going to be the two of us now. We've had this kid. And so we have what is was a typical traditional, quote unquote, American family happening. And by the end of the episode, that record player that gave us what a wonderful world and how wonderful life could be if we let it mm-hmm. turns into a skipping uh, record player that is at the end of its tape. It is at the end of Maddie's time. It's at this moment of pure and utter horror in the same spot that was once a place of joy. And that mm-hmm. is oh, thematically very heavy. Right. But it's so well done. Like, it's the kind of simple thing where if you were casually watching this episode, you might even forget that we opened with this depiction of normalcy. It's everything that we should aspire to as, you know, Americans of a certain age and income bracket and so on, right? Like, this Mm -hmm. is desirable. This is photogenic. You might see this in a magazine as uh, an icon of the American dream, right? Perfect family, great house, everything is fine. And by the end of the episode, we have completely subverted that using the exact same actors. <laughs> exactly. And I think what makes this episode so exciting to me is that I do think we also see a lot of the themes that Lynch has explored up until this point. We have like this idea of of doppelgangers, of two people, mm-hmm. of like the exterior and the interior. Leland on the exterior is this good, is America's dad, as you called him. Yeah, He is this. And on the interior, there is this parasite that's attached to him that makes him do horrible things. So we have that, which again, if you were look at Ed and like the, the macrocosm, it's the idea of this perfect pitch, perfect American town that is holding something rotten in it that he has explored mm-hmm. in blue velvet. And time and time again, he likes to show these two different mirror images of each other and say, Hey, there is something horrible just lurking underneath the surface. And this episode yeah does that perfectly from the very beginning of traditional American life and then getting it warped by the end of it. Mm-hmm. But also, I am curious to see where this is going to lead to, because again, if everyone thinks Maddie's going to leave, do people find the body? What is going to happen with with her character? Like, it leaves me these questions that I don't know how are going to get resolved. But this idea of Maddie just leaving, just vanishing from public view, while we have a man trying to basically still represent this traditional uh, father of America. So I, I'm, I'm curious mm-hmm. how that's going to, how that's going to play out, but it also just, I don't know. It like, as someone, as we've been going through uh, Lynch's filmography up to this point, it just made me so excited to see how, how he's still attacking these same kind of themes that he's been peppering out throughout his shows and movies. Mm, yeah. 
I will say that the thing that makes me most sad about this episode, because I remember being delightfully surprised when Cheryl Lee comes back as this doppelganger. And it's so wink, wink, nudge, nudge, you know, it's yeah. so clearly the same actress, only she's got her regular hair instead of her dark hair. <laughs> and there's it it's funny to me right it's part of the in joke that the show seems to be having with viewers but i actually really grow to like maddie and even to the mm -hmm. point where i would rather see her with james because i think she has better chemistry with him than donna and sure it's a very teen nighttime soap opera thing to have the love triangle with the young kids but when she dies in this episode, it's not just revisiting the murder of Laura Palmer, aka the thing that most people became invested in the show around. Like, that's, this is what drew us to the show, is the murder of this young girl. And now we're basically watching it happen again as the giant intones. And I always just think, this poor girl just came here because her cousin was murdered. She wanted to comfort her uncle and aunt. Mm. And... I never can figure out if she had of stayed, if she hadn't said anything to Leland to disrupt this perfect American dream that they have at the beginning of the episode, if he would have been able to keep Bob at bay and maybe she would have lived. Like, is the reason that she's dead because she announces, hey, I'm going to go. I'm disrupting this perfect fantasy. I do think that the show is sort of intonating that because I also had the same thought by the beginning of it when when she says that she's going, I was like, ooh, this is not going to bode yep. well for her. And <laughs> Girl, you in danger. <laughs> right, basically. Because again, I, I, unfortunately, I was I was spoiled that, you know, the, uh, that Leland was the killer, right? And so as we're getting yeah. into this, I was like, oh boy, this is mm -hmm. not something you want to tell <laughs> this guy who has whatever happens to him, he has murdered his daughter. Mm -hmm. And now we're having the proxy of his daughter leaving. This is not going to be good. Even if, even if you were to take out the fact that there is a, a supernatural killer happening here, mm -hmm. and maybe Laura had died from natural causes, the fact that her mom, Laura's mom is so fragile at this point. Yeah. And I do think that they have sort of leaned on, we talked about, you know, the back in servant days on, on our recaps, this idea of like not being able to let go of that grief. And mm -hmm. I do think that that is something here too, where the family is not able to let go of the pain. And so they're now right. being forced to, to deal with it. that. <laughs> and so that's never going to be a good thing. <laughs> I mean, this is one of those situations where like you have to sell this house. You need to leave twin peaks. You cannot stay here. Yeah. yeah. Cause uh, that's the other thing we haven't really talked about. I love this idea that Leland has a hypnotic suggestion that he can use to knock his wife out. Oh, yeah. It's, it's just so creepy and lecherous. And that image of Grace Zabriskie crawling across her living room floor, calling for her husband and then being knocked out that precedes the murder. Oh, and, and even Maddie saying is something burning like what the fuck yeah i love the way lynch intercuts this by the way with with her crawling with uh what's happening at um i believe at the at the bar mm -hmm. and the way that it, it like sort of we get hints of the the record player playing and then we switch to a different scene and mm -hmm. then we see her sort of dragging herself down the stairs and we get i love the way that lynch is slowly starting to introduce the the true horror of what's gonna of what is closing out this episode but he mm -hmm. does it in such a 
a way that makes you uncomfortable even before we get to the uncomfortableness. Yeah, yeah, you're already on edge and you don't even fully understand why. Right. Oh, it's so good. It's, it's really, really fucking good. <laughs> I can understand why this episode, like, if you go out to IMDb and they always have, like, on the on under episodes, they always have, like, the top rated. This mm-hmm. is the top rated episode. Uh-huh. This yeah, is the one uh, that is that is featured. Yeah. So, uh, and this is the episode that also sees a giant uptick in the audience. Because I think ABC knew if anything was going to bring people back, it was the reveal of the killer. And we might be able to set the stage for, okay, this is why you want to tune into Twin Peaks. So, just as you suggested, this is something of a season finale. Because I think they were looking at it as a soft relaunch for the show. And it worked like the previous episodes, we're talking about 11 million average. And then for this one, it jumps back up to 17. Which I think would be a high for the rest of the series. Wow. Yeah, because the the finale only pulls in 10.4. And even that is uh, a bit of a the last couple of episodes are a bit of a jump because I think people knew, oh, we're going to try something big again. But it was already falling into like seven and eight million. So this is the the last gasp. I do love that we bring back uh, Log Lady. Mm-hmm. What I appreciated because she shows up at the uh, the police station and there's like this inference that like she might be. I don't know, like the goodness, like there's, there's some almost like if you were to pit this as like good versus evil, there is mm-hmm. something to her character where she feels very in tune with what is happening. And the show does not explain it whatsoever. Nope. But the fact that she shows up and then it's her and Harry and Cooper that go to the bar to see the band play that eventually turns into the giant that is talking directly to, to Cooper. But like, Mm -hmm. there's this moment of like supernaturalness around her that I just, I just really appreciate. And she makes me happy. Absolutely. Oh God. This this character is a joy. Even if you think she's the weirdest fucking character on a time show, but like to the extent that when Showtime resuscitates Twin Peaks for the return in 2017, 2018, they knew enough about, the popularity of the character that in the press kits that they sent to people was a plush log. Oh, (laughs) that is so cool. Yeah, it's I mean, she's iconic. She just is. She is. Well, and the fact that she shows up at the police station and she says, we don't know what will happen or when, but there are owls in the roadhouse. And that, mm-hmm. that idea of owls ties into what it was said earlier with Bobby's father, who is part Major of the breaks. Yep. Air Force? Army? I can't remember which. Yeah. But he's part of the government, and he is getting things from outer space that say the owls are not what they seem. Mm-hmm. And so we have this woman who might be connected with these aliens or whatever force is trying to communicate. And she says, the owls at the roadhouse. He says, something is happening, isn't it, Margaret? She says, yeah. yes. Yeah. I love that. Ooh, gives me shivers. That that and knowing where we're going to go when everything in the TV show falls apart. And before we get the return, when Lynch has the opportunity to make the movie, which everyone thinks will wrap things up. And of course, it just opens a million new questions because <laughs> it's a prequel. But we are constantly dropping Firewalk with me. Yes, exactly. Uh, <laughs> I have to say this episode does make me excited for the return. I do. I am really excited to see a show that is not maybe tied to mm-hmm. what 
what the um, production company wants, maybe. Right. Maybe it's a little bit more unfettered, Frost and Lynch. So I'm, I am very excited for that. And I will, even though a lot of the show, I'm going to be perfectly honest, listeners, is not completely vibing with me. Mm-hmm. I am going to finish the season, and I am very excited to watch the return okay okay well the good thing is is that you can watch fire walk with me without finishing this season because as i said it is a prequel so mm-hmm. uh we don't have to have you go through the entire back half of season two <laughs> before we can discuss it but yes uh finishing season two will help you to understand how we set up some of the things for the return but i will warn you the comedy the weirdness doesn't fully go away so some of these things where you you're looking at and saying oh i wish we could just focus on the mystery vibes uh the return doesn't jettison everything that makes twin peaks because that absurdist comedy is still there and i will say it i found it challenging the first go around because i okay yeah there were things i wanted from the return and it definitely gives it to me but there's also a lot of dougie and i'm not going to say anything more than that <laughs> one one final note that i that i had was what i appreciate from lynch is when he he seems when he stages the great northern and he's in charge of of directorial duties mm-hmm. the last time oh, when we talked about all the background people yes <laughs> yes the last time when we talked about the great northern and there was the the barbershop quartet that mm-hmm. were that were sort of singing and there the music that was was happening was sort of the background of of the of the the soundtrack, but yep. it wasn't them singing, but like the fact that they were there and here when we get to the great Northern and it's the, it's the scene where Gerard is like trying to determine <laughs> which person is inhabited by Bob, which by the way, okay, mm-hmm. we'll get to that in a moment, but we, before, <laughs> before we do get to that, the fact that in the background, there are a bunch of Navy uh, people mm-hmm. and they're playing with bouncing balls, bouncy yep. balls. Yep. Just because why? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Because it makes for an interesting audiovisual experience. It does. It's very. It was very entertaining, and it, it brought me back to us discussing the barbershop quartet that showed up earlier. Mm-hmm. But I, I will say, speaking of finally with this idea of Mike and Bob, mm-hmm. I love how no one bats an eye. No, people just roll with it because. Yeah, like it would be so easy to have Cooper be a skeptic and say, oh, I'm not vibing or gelling with whatever you weird local small town people are doing. And yet he is the most open minded of them all. But I even expected Harry, the sheriff, to be like, are you kidding mm-hmm. me? Because he has been it's it's interesting because they both seem to be they both seem to be taking on the role of sort of Mulder and Scully at the same time, like right. the skeptic and the believer. Like that is something that that is like a an odd couple play thing that I think works really well in, in storytelling. But mm-hmm. here they are both, neither of them is the, the believer to the skeptic. They are both equally believers and skeptics at the same mm-hmm. time. And so when we get to scenes like this, where it's like Mike and Bob, sure, there are spirits that are inhabiting people. The fact that the sheriff in particular is like, I mean, because at this point, Cooper has had dreams of giants. He has had fire walk right. with me. He's been told aliens are trying to communicate with me. It would make sense to me that he is a believer. Mm-hmm. But the sheriff, who is like, I just need to bring justice to this town. And right. <laughs> sure, let's let's deal with a, a spirit named 
Mike that's possessing people and a spirit named Bob that is killing people. (laughs) (laughs) But you have to remember, Harry also has a really great relationship with the log lady and Mm -hmm. his deputy is Hawk, who is indigenous and seems to have a deep spirituality in a little bit of a, you know, ooh, a white person wrote this indigenous character. But I think it errs on the side of aspirational mysticism if i can say that like we're treating this character with reverence so i feel like we surrounded harry with people who are going to help open his eyes that there is more than just what we quote unquote see in the natural world yeah yeah and then of course we arrest ben horn because his daughter has turned against him and uh we realized that he was having a sexual affair with laura palmer because of course he was he ran a brothel that whole sequence of conversation where where audrey has like the upper hand and Mm -hmm. talks about how she knows about one-eyed jack she knows about blackie and he's like trying to talk it off and then she says you remember prudence and she brings up the little mask and all of a sudden he's like, fuck, I'm Uh, caught. And so mm -hmm. they have this conversation that is probably the most real conversation. But again, there's that moment where it's almost as if they're, they're putting forward and forth another red herring because she asked, did you kill her? And he just says, I loved her. And so Mm -hmm. right there is a, as a red herring. And I, I kind of wonder if people were watching this and going, oh my gosh, he's the one that did it. And then we yeah. get to the end where it's not. Yeah, because it would totally make sense for someone like Ben Horn to be involved in this. But then you realize, Absolutely. no, he's just another shady fucking older dude on this show. Like, too much money, too much power, too much influence. And really, what he's doing is he's fucking over age-appropriate women, like Catherine and Josie. He's a creepy, disgusting guy, but he's not a killer. Yeah. 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 Also, sidebar, we, I know I don't want to overextend this episode's stay, but I do hate how we deal with Blackie. Yeah. It just feels like maybe it's just because I want a powerful female who's maybe also a bit of a villainess, but it smacks of a bit of grossness to me the way we handle that character. Yeah, I agree. I, I don't know. The whole resolution of, of Audrey getting out of there just did not really mm-hmm. work for me it's almost too sensational for what this show is doing it should mm-hmm. it feels like the show would be making fun of that from another nighttime soap opera yeah anyway i just wanted to get that in there justice for blackie <laughs> exactly <laughs> uh. well terry why don't we wrap up our discussion of lonely souls with that i'm very curious to hear how people feel about this episode if they have seen it before and they're revisiting it like me if they had it spoiled and they're checking it out for the first time like you or you know we've heard from a couple of people who have a a historical relationship with twin peaks you know their favorites uh i'm just curious how does this episode hold up for you because to me this is one of two defining twin peaks moments that i had like when i revisit this sequence its impact is completely visceral it hasn't changed at all i just find it so deeply distressing and i can't believe how effective it works yeah and even though i knew i knew that if, if this was the episode that was going to reveal Leland as, as well, Bob is Leland as the killer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's still getting to that, ep- that moment. It still sent, g- gave my, it like my stomach dropped. It made right. me feel so much dread in ways that I, I do think the, the horror moments of the show are just, are so stellar. The moments when, mm-hmm. when Lynch is able to kind of push past the limits of broadcast television in the eighties and nineties 
it's moments like that that I do think give the show a lot of goodwill among viewers because it is such a defining moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. He's uh, he's got the power, doesn't he? <laughs> he sure does. <laughs> All right. Well, folks, if you want to talk to Terry about his first time watching this episode, Mr. Terry, how would they get in touch? Uh, you would find me on any of the social medias that are still here at Gaily Dreadful. And Joe, if people want to chase you around, oh God, <laughs> I can't even say it. <laughs> How Chase dare you around you? a living room dressed as, as Bob. How would they get in touch with you? Oh my god, terrifying. Uh, <laughs> you can reach me at B Stole My Remote, and that's the letter B. And uh, of course, we will thank the Anatomy of a Screen Pod Squad Network for hosting the show. Uh, Terry, we uh, will take another brief hiatus from Mr. Lynch so we can hop back to Cronenberg's side of the podcast. It's uh, still time for doubling, though, because we're talking about twin gynecologists in Dead Ringers. Oh, I'm very excited. As someone that has seen the series before oh. he has seen the movie, I'm, yeah. I'm very excited. Yeah. Okay, that'll be a fun conversation, because I've also seen the TV show. Uh, it's a big recommend for me, folks, if you've never seen it. Rachel Weiss is doing immaculate work and the fact that she's she's gonna go unrecognized for that performance is baffling but okay i agree um but yeah i uh we will have lots of conversations then about how you think mr jeremy irons handles the role i can't wait all right well that'll about do it for us uh folks beware of the burning smell and we'll catch you next time Squad.